The world is ending. Again. Doomsdayers and apocalyptic prophets have warned of coming calamity for millennia. Still, humanity persists. This podcast invites entrepreneurs, scholars, community leaders, artists, and many others to envision the end of the world according to their expertise. I'm Vera Rose Smith, your host, and this is Art at the End of the World. Today's guest is Lily Rashidovich, Assistant Professor of Microbiology and Immunology and Assistant Professor of Molecular Physiology and Biophysics at the University of Iowa. Lily received her BA in Biology and French at Grinnell College, also in Iowa, and her PhD in Pathology and Biomedical Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Our conversation was recorded on Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. I'm really excited for your answers, and I'm sorry we have to do it in this format, but I appreciate you being flexible. Sure, no problem. Okay, so if you could introduce yourself and tell us about your current role. Okay, so my name is Lily Radoshevich, and I am uh, currently an assistant professor at the University of Iowa. Um, I am a scientist. I also have teaching duties with the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, but my primary um, role is to run a research laboratory, and um, we work on the host, that means us, uh, cell response to bacteria, in particular the bacterial pathogen Listeria monocytogenes, which you've probably heard about in the context of food recalls. And the idea behind our research is um, to try to learn more about cell stress pathways, including pathways that are normally antiviral, um, in order to see whether or not we could target them. And so right now, in this kind of unprecedented time, I've actually switched some of my work to uh, working in collaboration with Stanley Perlman and Wendy Morey on uh, coronavirus. So that's kind of exciting. Wow. And I know you're really passionate about Listeria because you have a dog whose name is Lister. Yeah. It's lovely. (laughs) Yeah. That, that is after Dr. Uh, Joseph Lister, so <laughs> it's equally nerdy, but yeah, who was really important for our times currently because he figured out that um, uh, doctors were giving their patients bacterial infections, so he was one of the first to figure out how to sanitize operating rooms and to instill in doctors to wash their hands, which is a very relevant and timely topic. Is it ever? Could you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are professionally? What is your background and your training? Yeah, so um, I uh, actually went to college in Iowa at Grinnell College, just an hour away. And um, at that point, I was uh, really interested in human health. Um, so initially what I thought I wanted to be was a medical doctor, but then I realized I was really more fascinated by scientific questions associated with human health and um, that I was better suited to being in a laboratory. So um, at Grinnell, I was given the amazing opportunity to do a summer abroad where I worked in a lab at the Pasteur Institute, which is one of the um, birthplaces of microbiology, and that inspired me even further. Um, So after that, I went and I did a PhD in biomedical sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. And after my PhD, in which I was working on um, 
host cell stress responses that are altered in cancer biology. I switched back to working on host pathogen interactions during a postdoctoral fellowship at the Pasteur Institute. So because of that early um, exposure I had, I ended up applying and working for six years abroad at the Pasteur Institute. And then um, after that, I applied for my own laboratory and the University of Iowa hired me. And that's how I found myself here. Thank you. And for anybody that might not know, where is the Pasteur Institute located? The Pasteur Institute is located in Paris, France, and it was initially established by Louis Pasteur himself. Um, and right now it's a very vibrant um, uh, research campus in the 15th um, uh, arrondissement of uh, Paris. So there they currently work on lots of bacterial pathogens. Um, they also work on the current coronavirus and lots of emerging pathogens. So a lot of the emerging pathogens are typically viral infections. So there's a laboratory currently working really um, around the clock on coronavirus too there. To work and live in France, did you need to also have fluency in the French language? Yeah, um, in general, science is very international. So many people do um, a postdoctoral fellowship abroad. And for we are lucky at, with English as our first language that the language of science currently is English. So we publish and present in English. Um, but uh, you don't just interact with your colleagues and lab mates when you're living abroad. So um, I actually was a French major at Grinnell as well. And um, that helped me a lot in my day-to-day -day interactions. And you could imagine that some people who might work in a lab who have um, uh, might not have ever lived abroad. So kind of interacting with your, with your colleagues and lab mates, um, speaking French was really, really useful. But many of my American colleagues who uh, in that laboratory who didn't speak French original, initially when they arrived, they, they took classes and developed the language um, during their postdoctoral fellowship. Amazing. And before college, how did you get interested in this work? What originally drew you to interest in the human body? Yeah, I think, um, I think at the very most fundamental level, I'm something of a hypochondriac, which is not a good time <laughs> oh, no. to be a hypochondriac right now. But very early on, I, I uh, in high school, I did the International Baccalaureate Program. And so I had really, um, I think, excellent teachers in biology. And so initially at that point, because um, we didn't, we didn't have the opportunities that people do today, actually. A lot of it was uh, looking at the world around us and ecology. I also had um, great uh, middle school teachers that inspired me to get into science early on in terms of um, looking into uh, native animals, for example. I'm, I'm from Colorado, so there was a there was a teacher at that time who got us involved in tracking bighorn sheep and that was really exciting. But what I found out was I was really always interested in this question about how viruses and bacteria make us sick. So I've always been drawn to that kind of interaction. And um, I wanted to understand it at a molecular level, but I also wanted my work 
um, to give back in some way. And um, so I, my ultimate goal is that hopefully down the, down the line, maybe 30 to 40 years, some of the stuff that we're working on in my lab and some of the questions that we're working on could be actually applied to human health, whether that is in the context of infection or um, one really cool thing is that you can learn things using the bacteria or the virus as a tool about our host cells that might be important in other human pathologies such as um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and um, cancer. So one other thing is that fundamental research can um, in host pathogen interactions can actually help us learn about other really important human diseases. Mm. Could you give us a little bit more information about what exactly is microbiology and immunology? Yeah, um, so uh, microbiology is the study of microorganisms. So this um, is loosely determined uh, by the size of the organisms that we work on. So that could be bacteria, viruses, um, that could also be um, parasites. Um, and immunology is the study of our immune system. And so broadly speaking, each one of our cells has the capacity to detect foreign intruders, and that would be innate immunity. And then there's um, a number of cells that can come in and help uh, protect our body from infection. And those are our innate immune cells um, that kind of patrol all the time. Uh, these would be cells like neutrophils or macrophages that eat up um, pathogens and could be thought of as first responders um, to an infection. And then there's a branch of immunology that studies our adaptive immune response. And I think probably you've been hearing a lot about the idea of seroconversion. So that means when your body has started to make antibodies to a pathogen. And so another test that we can use in the coronavirus example is whether or not people have actually been infected but didn't realize because they were asymptomatic, but their innate immune, I mean, their adaptive immune system will make a response um, that can be detected uh, through a blood test. So I don't know if you want me to go into mm. more detail. No, that's I think probably great for now. Follow-up question, has studying immunology and microbiology helped you personally address your hypochondriacisms? Um, I'm not sure. I would <laughs> say that, especially during our stay-at-home, shelter-in-place, uh, mandate. Uh, every day, I think seasonal allergies might be the coronavirus, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. <laughs> you are <laughs> definitely think, not. Yeah. Even though I understand it, um, that really, uh, I would say the really uh, difficult piece of this particular disorder is that you could be carrying the virus and infected for many days before you show symptoms. Mm. And influenza, that period is a lot shorter. So you can, you kind of know when you're infected. So I think it's maybe worse that I don't oh, know my hypochondria. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we've kind of touched on one way the world might end according to microbiology and immunology, because we're all living it right now. But mm -hmm. can you either expand on our current potential world ending or tell us some other ways the world might end according to your expertise? Yeah. Um, so I just want to also highlight what a timely topic you picked. <laughs> yeah. this, 
this podcast and this series preceded the current epidemic or pandemic rather. Mm. Um, and I would say that generally we are worried as a community about two specific things when we're talking about um, the world ending in our field. And one is the emergence of viral pathogens. So you've all heard a lot about that. And I just at this point want to say that there's a lot of really great information coming out of the University of Iowa. So if you want to hear more, um, there are at least four labs working on SARS-2 currently. So the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, those are the labs of Stanley Perlman, Wendy Mori, and Balaji Manakasami, and a little bit my lab in collaboration. So they were on river to river and everything. So if you want to hear more, we actually have a world expert on coronavirus at the University of Iowa. Um, and so the idea being that with air travel, that the emergence of a virus in a particular area wasn't necessarily confined to that area, that it was spread rapidly and that we would have um, a major pandemic as a result. And the other kind of really scary scenario, which might be related, is uh, about bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics. And so you've heard a lot about this um, in general, and that's because not only do we uh, overuse antibiotics in a clinical setting, um, but also a lot of our foods, um, when animals uh, in large, um, processing plants, for example, are given antibiotics to grow faster in a bad situation. And that leads to a lot of bacteria um, and in the soil and contaminating the animals that become resistant. And this can easily be transferred to, um, uh, uh, that can easily be transferred to humans uh, that have bacteria on their microbiome which is the term for the bacteria that colonize us and are helpful, um, can have these, anti these antibiotic resistant uh, properties and then they can pass it to pathogens. So one, one thing that might emerge is that in this current pandemic, um, like in 1918, some of the people that are the most sick, they might actually also have bacterial infections. Um, and that seems to be a large com comorbidity. Um, and uh, sometimes these are hospital acquired, um, and we might find out later that antibiotic resistant bacteria contributed uh, to, to this viral pandemic. And um, I would just like to say that I would hope that industry and funding sources for laboratories would also emphasize being ready for that as opposed to reacting after the emergence of an outbreak. That's very scary. <laughs> How are you working to avoid these world endings or to address our current pandemic? You've talked a little bit about the collaborations your lab is currently undertaking, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah, so um, one of the pathways that we work on in our lab, um, so just so everyone's on the same page, you all know about DNA. DNA can then be um, transcribed, that's what we say, into a message, which is called mRNA. And that mRNA can be translated just like a language, these are the terms we use, into a protein. And so one pathway that we work on um, is an antiviral pathway that's also, we say, upregulated or produced following a bacterial infection. And so what we've been doing is trying to understand there's about 300 of these proteins that are made 
in an initially infected cell and by cells in the immune system. And so what my laboratory does is we try to establish um, kind of a repertoire of what this particular protein called ISG15, um, and that means interferon-stimulated gene of 15 kilodaltons, so that's just its size, its mass, basically, um, is doing during both bacterial and viral infections. And so one thing that we've done is we use a technology called mass spectrometry to identify other proteins that this protein is binding to. It's kind of like a molecular tag. Mm -hmm. And so our idea is that we don't understand what it's doing without figuring out what it's binding to. So we've done this in the context of listeria infection, and we recently published that paper. Um, and now what we're doing is we're applying that to coronavirus infection. So first, in a mouse model for coronavirus, so murine coronavirus, and hopefully then we will be able to work um, with the actual coronavirus in collaboration with uh, Stanley Perlman and Wendy Morey. Can you tell us more about the mouse modeling system? Yeah, um, so in general, um, our, um, not all pathogens um, can actually infect mice readily. And so some of the time when we're looking at the immune response, we have to use a mouse model of infection because what we, we don't wanna just look at tissue culture cells. Let me take a step back. So a lot of the things we can do can occur in vitro. And so that could be cells um, that are grown in a dish in the laboratory. But unfortunately, that doesn't incorporate how an immune response can react to that infection. So sometimes we look for co-culture models or models in a mouse model of infection. But as is the case for this current virus, the human virus does not infect mice unless they express a, a version of the receptor, which is ACE2, that is quote unquote humanized. So using, um, using uh, genetic techniques uh, to DNA, some researchers, including Stanley Perlman at the University of Iowa, have made a mouse that expresses the human um, receptor for the disease, and then the mice would get sick with the coronavirus. So in my laboratory, we have other genetic um, models that we look at. We can delete the protein that we're working on, and we can um, use a model in which the protein and its activity are enhanced. But we would have to cross this mouse model to the humanized mouse model. So what we're doing at first is using a coronavirus that is called mouse hepatitis virus, and this um, affects the liver and lungs of mice and is a natural mouse pathogen and doesn't aff affect humans as a model for what's, what we will then do with um, the coronavirus, so the SARS virus. Thank you. Sure. Is anything giving you hope right now? Yeah, um, I actually wanted to tell people a little bit about the publishing process and how science works. Um, Please. Yeah, if, if we have some non-scientists in the audience. Um, and so one really 
so like any field, typically what we do is we work for years. Um, and one, one issue and kind of misconception about science is that it's easy. Well, it's not really easy to do this. So most of the time our experiments fail. And so part of these long training processes is learning how to design the best experiments so that we could um, move knowledge forward. Um, and the way we share our results is in the form of research papers that synthesize um, our data in the form of figures and talk about it and communicate it to the scientific community. So typically what happens is uh, everything that I talked about, for example, would be put into a paper and that paper would be peer reviewed. Um, and then we would have to address the comments of our peers and make the paper better for it to then be accepted and published. However, one really interesting thing that gives me a lot of hope is that there's a new system called BioArchive, which has been um, taken from the math community in which peer review takes a really long time because mathematicians have to do proofs themselves of the same data. Um, and it's a way to publicly share your unpublished data as you submit it to a journal. And one really cool thing about this has been that initially scientists in China, because that's where the pandemic started, um, were sharing their unpublished data about coronavirus in real time. And that allowed scientists all over the world to share their data as well. So the one caveat is that sometimes the studies haven't been seen by peer review. So there was an issue in which um, some of the journal, some people probably overstated the effect of chloroquine, for example, and that, that paper came out of France. So on the one hand, you don't get peer review, but on the other hand, scientists are literally sharing very openly all of their data. Um, and it is a competitive field, so the fact that people share openly for the greater good of everyone in the community, I think gives me a lot of hope. Thank you. Anything else I should have asked? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I would just say be sure to take a look at my colleagues' um, interviews if you want to learn more about the coronavirus work going on at the University of Iowa. And I just want to say thanks to your students um, for adapting to remote learning. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's not easy, and hopefully we'll all get through this together. I think we will. And it's always nice to hear from experts who are producing new knowledge in the world and who have such a different perspective from both my students, myself, and our entire, hopefully, broader audience because of this new platform. So thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you for asking me. I had a great time. This has been Art at the End of the World with Beryl Rose Smith. Tune in next week to learn about another way the world might end. The music for this podcast was written, performed, and produced by Gabby Vanek. You can hear more of her work at her SoundCloud, which is linked in the show notes. Thanks, Gabby, and thanks all of you for listening.